Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We're presented by CLNS Media. Today on the show, Coles Wickers here. We're going to break down the surprises of the NBA season. Uh, this has been a weird NBA season so far. Uh, it does feel more open than past seasons. It does feel like it's been... The games feel like they've been more exciting. I'm more excited to sit down and watch NBA every night, every morning, whenever I sit down in front of the computer with Synergy or just on TV with ESPN or something like that. Do you feel that way? Like, Do you feel like even though we have teams that are tanking, even though we have teams that uh, it seems like the worst teams are worse than last year, I am just more excited to sit down. Like this, The game-based storylines seem to be a little bit better this year, Cole. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm always excited to watch NBA, and I think with the draft class this year in college basketball, I'm even more excited to watch NBA. I think the product's fine. I think a lot of the pushback has been a little bit unwarranted. Maybe how the product's being presented by certain outlets has diminished, and I, I of course, get the officials' criticism with some of some of the stuff that's going on, but I think the game is, at a, is in a great place right now. There's a lot of great young players, and uh, I'm, I'm definitely into it. Well, yeah, like, let's be real about it. Like, Jeff Van Gundy going on ESPN every time he announces a game and just, like, shit-talking the NBA and the way the game is played now. And then, like, Shaq and Charles Barkley still, you know, I think Barkley has finally been, like, a little bit convinced on teams that shoot heavy amounts of threes being able to win titles. But, like, Shaq still is on about getting the big man involved, right? And, And... it feels like we have all of these older players who are struggling to adjust to the way the game is played now and are thus and I don't even, like I don't want to say that they're wrong for doing this. I think that it's great to have their experiences in the media and great to have them discussing the games, but like a lot of them do tend to be somewhat negative about today's game and that gets I don't even, I don't know if tiresome is the right word, but it's. I think it certainly takes the focus away from these really, really fun players that populate the game right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think at times the game, especially in the regular season, can get a bit arcade style. But I do think you have to reframe it and say a lot of this is strategy. Like a lot of these teams just don't have personnel, especially on the defensive side, to really put out two-way lineups. So we see teams like the Wizards, who we're going to talk today, put out a ton of offensive firepower. And I think if you reframe it as a strategy point, like they're trying to win games. This is the, I mean, I don't know if they're really, really trying to win games, but they're putting out lineups to where their team is optimized. If you put it that way, you know, taking threes, I mean, the math is the math at this point. And yeah, at times I'd like to see, again, a little bit more defensive play in the regular season. But again, a lot of these teams don't have the personnel to really do that credibly while I'll also putting out, you know, legitimate offensive lineups. Yeah, and, you know, like I said, we're going to talk today about surprises, players, teams, anything around the league that has was not expected coming into the year and has obviously been really great through the first quarter of the season so far. And, you know, you mentioned Washington, so I'm pretty comfortable just starting here because of the Davis Burton's game last night. Davis Burton's, I'm sorry. Uh, Davis Burton's, is shooting 46.5% on 8.6 three-point attempts per game right now. Uh, last night, and we were talking beforehand, like I have not watched this performance from last night yet. You said it was just like totally outrageous. He dropped 32 points on 8 of 12 from three. Uh, he has made, it looks like, 26 threes in the last four games of his season. He is He has been unbelievable this year. He has been one of the most fun players to watch uh, across the NBA this season in a way that you would never expect to say that about Davis Bertans because he just has no conscience in his shot selection. And whenever you're shooting 46.5% from three, it's damn near impossible to take a bad shot from three. Yeah, I mean, these weren't normal threes last night. He was, he was like, running with the ball across half court. He took a pull-up three that was contested with, like, 20 seconds on the clock. I, I did see it that was, highlight. <laughs> it was incredible. And he did that numerous times. He did that once against Devontae Graham um, later in the game. He was coming off movement and, and shooting, like, fadeaway shots. And this guy is just incredible as far as his. We haven't seen anything like this from a big spot for sure. I, I don't know if I've ever seen this. It, it's like Stephen Curry-esque as far as the leeway 
that he gets. I think Bradley Beal like threw up his hands on one of the shots. It was like one of the biggest no, no, yes moments of the season. But he, he was just unconscious last night. But I, I just think again, like they're playing to his strengths. Like he can get off volume threes. He can shoot from you know four feet out, and he's taking even pull up threes in transition. It's just very unique for a big to have that skill set. And it was just if you haven't seen this, if the listeners haven't seen this, and you have a way to watch this game, it's hard to even summarize and give it its due. You have to go watch it. It was just an incredible shot making display. Yeah, and he's just like like I said, like he's one of those dudes that has no conscience uh, when it comes to shot selection. Whenever he's feeling it, um, if you look at his percentages this year, like by synergy, right? Like he's only in the 87th percentile in catch and shoot, in 53rd percentile in shots off the dribble. Like he's only taken 28 shots off the dribble. Um, it sounds like he took half of those last night, based off of your description. But <laughs> I just. I love these dudes, and those co- those are half-court shots. Uh, if you look at his transition numbers, they are insane. He is hitting 86.2 effective field goal percentage in transition, in large part because he just sprints out to the wing, sprints out to the corner, and catches kickouts for wide-open threes and just hits them at a ridiculous clip. Yeah, it was just kind of hilarious last night. I think Chris Chioza had a wide-open three. And Bertans was one pass away. PJ Washington didn't even try to rotate, and Bertans was like at the logo. PJ was like three <laughs> or four feet outside. He's just, I'm done with this shit. And it wasn't over yet. Oh, it was just, it was, it was an incredible sequence. But I, I just think it's kind of funny because, again, I think a lot of how we open the podcast, how the NBA is viewed now. And for me, this is like a, a quintessential strategy point. Like the Wizards are in an egregiously bad defense. They're, they don't have the personnel to be good. So they just put these very pro offense lineups on the floor. You know, Mo Wagner can space the floor. They have a ton of big man spacing on that team. And they and they really take advantage of that. And like you noted, like Berton's in transition especially. It's just not something that teams usually have to deal with uh, from a big. And by the way, Mo Wagner uh, – I'm still not convinced that he's an NBA player just because he is egregiously bad on defense. Um, And this is something that I noted in my prospect series. Like I thought last year, Mo Wagner was the worst defensive player in the NBA that I watched. Um, He's gotten better than that, but like he's still not even remotely anything nearing good. But like between Wagner, Bertans, Rui, like, so many of these guys, they're just clueless out there defensively, and they just run the floor and play at a fast tempo <laughs> and try and shoot threes, and in Rui's case, uh, try and attack off the bounce. Like, it, it's, it honestly is, like, to talk about Rui for a second, and I think we might talk about him later on in the podcast too, but, like, it's kind of a perfect situation for him because his skill set is being the guy that is capable of attacking in that mid-range area and using his strength and first-step quickness to be able to bully his way to the basket. Like, even against NBA players, as we've seen this year, his intersection of being strong and quick allows him to be able to be effective as a scorer. And this is like a perfect scheme for him. Like, he's just finding all of the little space he can to attack. Yeah, no, he's been he's been good on pull-ups in the mid-range area. Like you said, he gets to the rim when he is. He's like a mismatch big, and that's what he does. Yeah. He, he goes at you in space. And, I mean, if they're playing this style, which is very up-tempo, very much score-oriented, I think he fits well into that. Like like you noted, I think defensively he, he struggled a bit. Like even last night you could see, like he's making rotations. Like he's trying to help, but he's over-helping. Like I think he helped off P.J. Washington in the corner four times yesterday for basically no reason. He didn't need to. So I think that's honestly a takeaway with help defense too it's not always about making the rotations about staying disciplined and pj shot the living shit out of the ball this year from three so that's not a good help but i just think that's a microcosm of the team they just don't have right now the guys who make consistently good decisions on defense and what would you rather be like a bad entertaining team on offense or a bad not entertaining team i think the answer is pretty clear yeah and i think it's worth bringing up the flip side of bertans as well uh San Antonio this year, if there's a team that could use a floor spacer more than San Antonio, I'd I'd be hard-pressed to find it, I would say. Uh, And they basically gave away Bertons for nothing because they were planning on signing Marcus Morris and needed the cap space. And then Morris obviously ends up going against that deal and deciding to sign in New York. And, like, look, not a great look for Marcus. Not a great look, honestly, for San Antonio to not have that locked down before moving Bertons. And by the way, like Marcus Morris this year, 
has not been bad on offense. Like, he would actually be a huge help for San Antonio, and, like, part of this is that San Antonio got lucky or got unlucky a little bit. But, man, are we – it's hard for me to, like, comprehend. Do we think that San Antonio was, like, holding back Bertans a little bit offensively? And now that we have him in this wide-open Washington scheme that, honestly – even me, guy who loves up-tempo <laughs> basketball, guy who loves spread, pick, and roll, I don't really think this is a strategy conducive to winning the way that they're playing. Uh, having said that, do we think that San Antonio was holding him back a little bit and Washington saw something in the way that they were going to play and saw it as a perfect opportunity? Or do we think that Bertans is just kind of who he is and he's going through a hot first quarter of the season and is going to come back down to earth at some point I mean honestly it could be a little bit of both frankly like I do think Bertans is a very very good shooter I think this year he's one of the best shooters in the league can he sustain that I mean we'll see (laughs) right now it's just insane considering the shot quality as well like he's taking some really hard shots and making them I think Dave DeFore has done a really good job of touching on this from the San Antonio perspective as far as what they're missing with his spacing and whatnot but yeah he wouldn't be able to play like this on the Spurs pretty clearly I think the, the Wizards are you could say optimizing Davis Bertans with his volume three-point shooting. Kind of, we're going to talk about this guy in a little bit as far as Devontae Graham and how the Hornets are optimizing Devontae Graham as far as allowing him to take an incredible volume of threes. Sometimes that's how you get the most out of, of, they're not the same kind of player clearly, but sometimes that's how you get the most out of you know, volume three-point shooters is you have to actually let them take a ton of them and, and play at a certain tempo. In San Antonio's case, <laughs> I do just want to bring up how do we think this team has been run since they moved Kawhi? Yeah, I I don't have a lot of stark positives to say, honestly, yeah. with this. I'll let you take like, this one away. It's been kind of bad, to be honest, because they give away Bertons for free. They decide that they want to put their eggs in the DeMar DeRozan basket because they want to continue to compete. I didn't really love that at the time because I just saw it as such a low upside move for them. Uh, They still are doing a good job of, like, hitting on these undrafted, useful players, right? Like, Bryn Forbes has been another guy that, like, has been pretty good this year, right? Uh, Like, Lonnie Walker, I think, was really good. Lonnie Walker was not undrafted, but I think Lonnie Walker, um, in the minutes he's gotten this year, looks like a hit for them. But then they've also, like, gone out and signed Trey Lyles and decided to emphasize getting Marco Bellinelli. And, like, both of those dudes are fucking terrible on defense to the point where they are, in my opinion, basically unplayable. Um, And yet again, they continued to run out Trey Lyles for, like, the first month of the season as they're starting power forward. And, like, they refused to start Derek White. And, like, I haven't watched them in a week and a half, but, like... They were not playing Derek White and DeJounte Murray together at all. I don't know if that's changed, but, like, that is a weird decision for a team that has been just atrocious in perimeter defense this year, despite having two really good perimeter defenders. And then the DeJounte Murray contract is, I will say it's one that has significant downside if he doesn't figure out how to score efficiently on offense. And if I was them, like... I'd have been pretty comfortable letting that roll into the offseason and just kind of seeing where that went. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I think Derek White has been starting the last couple of games. I haven't seen the Spurs he's, in probably He's been starting, but at the expense of DeJounte. Yes, I think he's starting. Is he starting with Patty Mills? Like Mills has actually been pretty. Like most of their advanced numbers favor Mills as far as okay. So yeah, I I don't know. Like I I think I'm with you. I I didn't mind the Murray extension, but I wasn't like this is a home run like a lot of people on Twitter were like this is going to be this incredible value contract. I, I think it could be a good contract if Murray makes certain offensive developments, but I don't think that's necessarily a shoe in to happen. I mean, his lack of shooting has stemmed back to, you know, college and pre-college. Like, he's not a great shooter. So how do you run your offense through that kind of lead guard if he's really going to initiate your offense? And can he play off the ball? Can he space? I I think there's a lot of question marks to answer. It could be good. It wasn't like the cost was enormous. But I I, I don't think that it's just purely, you know, a a plus upside play. Like, there is some downside to it. Yeah, and like, just kind of fitting in with the construct of this podcast, right? 
I kind of feel like the, the Spurs not being competently, I don't even know if like competently is the right word, but like not being managed to the fullest extent of basketball potential, which they have been over the course of the last two decades. Like, I feel like that's a pretty big surprise. Like when I watch this team, I just want to get DeMar DeRozan off of the team, even though he, I don't even think he's been that atrocious this year. Like he's been pretty bad defensively, but he's shooting 51% from the field. He's averaging 21 points a night. He's got like five assists a game when a two, per, two to one assist to turnover ratio. Like he's basically been what they, I would assume expected to acquire from him when they got him. And yet still, I just want to get him off of this team and hand the reins over to a combination of DeJounte Murray and Derek White, along with some of these other guys, and just kind of see where it goes from there. Yeah, I just don't think they've been good enough on the defensive end. And, you know, Alder's just taken a step down from what I've seen his play on the defensive side. He's probably more of a pure five at this point as far as mobility. And, they, I mean, they should have a better defense with the guards that they have. But they yeah. this goes and back Pirtle. to... Like, Jakob Pertle is yeah. a really good defender. But this goes back to balancing offense and defense. Like, if you play White and DeJounte together, I mean, White has been a, a pretty decent floor space. He doesn't take enough threes. DeRozan doesn't shoot threes at all. So when you pair him next to DeJounte, is that tenable if you play a traditional center? So I think there's a lot of balancing with these lineups. There's nothing clear. You're sacrificing on one end or the other based on who you play. And I do think, again, you can look at the draft this year. I mean, we don't know what Lucas Sandwich is going to be. Keldon Johnson has played a lot in the G League. It's been okay last time I checked as far as numbers, but they're not getting any immediate impact from these classes. You can point to guys who are on the board who I think were better players, and we'll kind of see how that plays out over time. I just don't think... I used to trust the Spurs in, like, ironclad fashion. Like, I think everybody did, frankly. Like, they kind of earned that over the years for some of the the low picks they made with like Parker Ginobili clearly and the moves they made on the margins. I don't see those same moves on the margins being executed, really stepping back to giving Pau Gasol that big deal. And maybe that was part of course of him opting out or whatnot, but it just doesn't seem like they're making enough good decisions anymore. Yeah, I agree. And like, honestly, I actually am a fan of their young pieces right now. Like I really like the fact I don't love DeJounte and I don't love the contract, but like I love Derek White. I think Lonnie Walker is a hit. I would imagine that I'm on the higher end when it comes to Pirtle because, like, I think he's probably, like, a lower-end starting center in the NBA because his defense is genuinely impactful. He's really good rim protector. He can move his feet on the perimeter. Uh, I would like to see him play more, to be honest. Like, I don't think he should only be getting 19 minutes a night. I'm probably a little bit higher than you on Keldon Johnson. I think Samanich is, like, a fine, you know, first-round flyer to take to develop in the G League for a year. Like, they actually do have some interesting young guys. They have five or six first-round picks that are really interesting. I just don't know where it all goes from here, and I agree with you that their signings on the margins uh, have just not been good enough straight up. Yeah, and I would be, if I was another team, I would be calling on Derek White. I've always been a Derek White guy. I think that I think he is honestly kind of a rare player for his archetype, like a guy who can do enough offensively, but incredibly good defender. I, his numbers aren't as good this year, but I very much still believe in his defense. And I think he's going to shoot it. And, he, and he's, he has those kind of indicators. And you know, when you get him taking more cash and shoots, I think on a certain teams, he'd make a lot of sense for like a two-way guy in the playoffs. So I'm still very high on him. But yeah, we'll, we'll kind of see how the rest of it plays out. It's too early, of course, to really evaluate 2019 in full with how little Samanich has played and, and how we've seen him progress and whatnot. But I, I just think overall, the point for me with the Spurs basically is just I don't think they're making the kind of Spursy decisions that they have in the past. They don't really have the infrastructure. They don't have the guy that you point to and say we're moving forward with him. And of course, they've had a ton of luck in the past. That's another something with them is like falling into Tim Duncan, falling into David Robinson. They've also had some incredible picks, and we just haven't seen those incredible picks of, of late if i was boston i would be calling about purtle too i would sure purtle is a restricted free agent this summer uh you know it seems unclear on what san antonio's you know infatuation level with him is right like it's not even like i don't i don't think they dislike him to be certain but like you have aldridge who you guaranteed already through next year uh you decided to draft Lucas Samanich and you probably don't want to play Samanich and Pirtle together. It's it's an open question for me what their long-term play is with Pirtle. I agree. And the final note for me is actually with Washington and Bertans. There's been some talk about maybe selling high on Bertans. 
he is an expiring contract at seven million. I think he has some incentives in that deal. If you are a contender or you are a, a team that maybe Burton's in the rotation could move the needle, what would you expect to be the return with him? Like, what were they looking at? Oh, do, you, do, you, man. do you think the Washington can get a first round pick for him? So what? Miritich got like four seconds last year, something exactly. like that. Um, which, by the way, like four seconds is probably better than a late first too. Um, especially the seconds that they got. Um, sure. I'm like trying to decide, do I think that a team like, like could the Bucks like decide to make that move? Maybe like he, Berton's oh would be God. like a perfect fit <laughs> there. Um, I'm trying to think like who is Dallas a team? Yeah. I mean, they have seconds available and they could include Courtney Lee's contract at least to match and, and take something else back potentially. But yeah, that's, I mean, Dallas would be, Berton's playing off Luca would be insane. Yeah, like Dallas stands out to me. Uh, I'm trying to like think of like contenders too, right? I'll say this: like the Lakers would be terrifying. Oh my god! <laughs> and like that's the, that's yep. the kind of spacer that they could really use, I think too. Like they have Danny Green in between LeBron and uh, Anthony Davis, and I could see worlds where they decide later in playoff series is to like not play Rondo a ton or not play like a true point guard, like Alex Caruso or something. And maybe, maybe like play someone like Bertans, who's like a true spacer over Kyle Kuzma or something in the right playoff series. Uh, that's kind of a terrifying move that would make sense for me. Actually make a lot of sense for me. Sure. And then the opposite side of the coin here uh, for Washington, would you trade, would you sell high on Bertans knowing that he's unrestricted and, but you do have his full board rights. What, what would you do there? Here is my last team. Uh, I would. Would you trade Zaire Smith for Zyre, for uh, Davis Bertans if you were Philadelphia? Oh boy, it's so hard. I, I really like Zaire as a prospect. I'm, I was always I was always probably a little bit higher on him than you, but it's so hard to not know to know without his knowing the specifics of his situation, right? Like he, the fact that he's not getting court time, and I think he probably should be at this juncture. I'd have to know more information. I think. So basically, the reason I bring up like someone like Zaire is. If I was Washington, it would all depend on the price tag, right? Uh, so Zaire Smith this year has not, like, set the world on fire in the G League. He's averaging 12.7 points, 4 rebounds, 1.5 assists versus 2.7 turnovers and shooting 26% from 3 and 50% from the field. So, I mean, if you're Washington, you're taking upside swings. If you're Philadelphia, you're genuinely tr- trying to compete right now. I kind of think that's a match. It definitely aligns interests. Like, if I had better intel on Zaire, I would do that if I was the Wizards. And I, I think that that would be a worthwhile play. I don't expect someone like Zaire to really kill the G League as far as offensive stats because, I mean, sure. he's a great yeah. defensive player. But your point is well taken. I, I do think if you have better intel on Zaire, that kind of trade, I think, aligns interests really well. And I will say this, too, in regard to Zaire. Uh, I would imagine that Washington has done their homework on him, just given the fact that they picked 15th in that draft. Troy yep. Brown was their pick, obviously. Uh, Zaire, I believe, went 17th. I would imagine, and I, I'm almost certain they had him in for a workout, uh, just remembering off the top of my head. I would almost certainly imagine that they have intel on Zaire still from when he was a draft prospect. Now the whole weight loss thing last year and Zaire almost dying due to a peanut allergy like all that stuff is very different and I would imagine that Washington does not have crazy intel on that having said yeah. that like I mean Bertons is going to be one of the most sought after free agents this summer this is like a weak class this is it's an interesting play if you're Washington I think to try and make a move to get good value for Bertons now yeah, no, definitely. I think that's why I brought it up. Is I, I think it's an interesting conversation to have at the least. And I, and I do think you can probably get something of some kind of value for him, especially right now. I mean, not at this very moment, but with, you know, December 15th, you know, almost here. I think you could look in to start trading that when more players become available to trade. Yeah. Yeah, like if, if I was Philadelphia, I would that would probably be my number one target, would be Davis Bertans, to be honest. I don't even know if Washington, Washington's going to be willing to trade him, but that would be my number one target. Um, all right. Uh, what, uh, I'm trying to think. Is there anything else you want to talk about with these two teams? I think that's good, honestly. Like, I, I, I will say one quick thing about Troy Brown. I'm a little worried about him. I ended up being a little lower on him. I had him like 26 in 2018, and his athleticism – it's just it's a real problem in the half court. Like yeah. I can't remember who he tried to drive against 
last night, but he got completely eaten up off the bounce. And if he's not going to shoot, he's one of those guys where the more you look at the draft, you realize, you know, these Swiss Army knife kind of wings that everybody kind of covets. But if they don't have one discernible skill and they're not great defenders, it's just very hard to carve out a long-term role that's valuable in the league. Like it's it's good to be able to do a lot of different things, but if you can't do anything well, um, it's a tough sell as far as impacting the game at a high level. Well, I think the key is athleticism. You have to be able to play the game. If sure. you're going to be a Swiss Army knife like that, you have to be able to play the game at a high level athletically. Otherwise, you're going to struggle. Well, I think functionally, yes, as far, especially on defense. Like if you can really right. defend. If, if you're like someone like a Coro in the draft, for example, like we've talked about in the past, like if you can defend at a, a reasonably high level, that becomes more tenable. But if you're not going to do that and you're not bringing any discernible plus skills on offense, it's just a, it's a little bit harder to sell long term, I think. And that's, again, a kind of player that a lot of people like. I mean, wings who can do a lot of different things should, in theory, be valuable. But you actually have to be able to do something well on either side of the floor. Right, like honestly, I as much as you and I love Grant Williams, and we do love Grant Williams. Grant Williams is the patron saint of this podcast, along with Isaiah Joe. And is there anyone else that is the patron saint of this podcast? Well, it was Zaire Smith. I mean, that's how he started getting this name. But I, yeah, you could probably go. I don't know, Brandon Clark, maybe too. I don't know. Clark's up there. We both like Brandon quite a bit. Um, but Grant Williams, I think that the excitement has. It's more like Colty than him bringing awesomeness on the floor. Like, he's really good defensively, and I know that the on-off numbers are pretty good, but, like, Grant's shooting 25% from the field right now and just made his first three of the season uh, earlier this week. Like, <laughs> I think that this is kind of an example of someone that, you know, Swiss Army knife guy that can do a lot of different things, especially very good defensively, very good offensive decision maker, but it kind of goes back to something that, I, w- I listened to Daryl Morey and Bill Simmons' podcast on the Book of Basketball, and Daryl just brought up the point, you really have to be able to score to play at the NBA level right now at a high level. Uh, and that is something that Troy is struggling with, and it's something that uh, Grant as well is struggling with right now. Yeah, and Grant, I mean, he started, what, like over 24 from three? Like, I think his touch level's better than that. He has to shoot, I think, right. to have real value. I've, I've been impressed with him defensively. I think he is a little bit different because he can play, you know, a big spot and play, like, dribble handoffs and stuff like that and really pass. But, yeah, I, I do d- definitely agree with the overall sentiment. He has to be able to threaten, at least as a scorer, much better than he's shown. Let's hit an advertisement real quick. Two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35. The good news with today's advancement in science, Keeps offers proven treatments that can combat the symptoms of hair loss and keep the hair you have at half the cost of your local pharmacy. You don't have to go broke to avoid going bald. Keeps offers generic versions of the only two FDA approved hair loss products out there. Uh, but probably never for this price. Uh, Plus Keeps now offers a prescription shampoo to keep your scalp healthy too. Prevention is the key. Keeps treatments really work. They are up to 90% effective at reducing and stopping further hair loss. And let me tell you, Cole, that is is something that I need drastically (laughs) in my life. Uh, Find out why Keeps has more than five more five-star reviews than any of its competitors and nearly 100,000 men trust Keeps for their hair loss prevention medication. Keeps' treatments start at just $10 a month, plus for a limited time, you can get your first month for free. That's one hell of a deal for getting to keep your hair. Uh, if you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to Keeps.com slash Game Theory to receive your first month of treatment for free. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash game theory. K-E-E-P-S dot com slash game theory. Uh, I, like I said, badly need to fix the situation that's going on 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 top of my head and keeps uh, is a terrific, terrific product. Uh, Let's get back to the show here. Cole, we also wanted to talk a bit about 
just the Hornets as well uh, in terms of surprises. So there are two guys in particular that I think are surprising, Devontae Graham and P.J. Washington. Devontae Graham, I noted this in my write-up on the Hornets' Uh, prospect series. Devontae Graham last year set the record for assist to turnover ratio for a rookie in the Synergy database. I think it was like five to one or something. I don't remember off the top of my head what it was, but he was really, really good as a decision maker distributor as a rookie. The problem was that he had no ability to score the basketball. He shot like 28% from three and he was his typically inefficient self going toward the basket. That is a problem that has long been an issue in Devontae's game, even going back to Kansas. But in the G League, when they gave him some rope, you could see some flashes of him being like an actual good scorer, and I think that that's the difference this year. He's come into his NBA minutes and been able to really function at a high level as a scoring guard, in large part because he is just knocking down threes at an absurd clip. Yeah, the pull-up threes, the threes off the catch. I mean, he gets them off at volume, too. Like, his volume intersection with efficiency right now, 42% on 8.8 threes a game, it's just ridiculous. And I think that goes to some of – you should credit the Hornets co- coaching staff and Borrego for understanding – and I've been very impressed with Borrego this season as far as understanding the strengths Agreed. and weaknesses of his players. How he utilizes Cody Martin, I think, is also really interesting as far as defense. Like When, when you see them go offense-defense, they usually – put Cody Martin in the game, take out PJ, which is kind of curious with the PJ part, but I think it does speak to him knowing his personnel, and I think that goes to Devontae. He's he's very strong in two areas. He's a really great shooter now, and he's always been a good three-point shooter, even in college. Was never an, a great, great three or free-throw shooter, which is kind of interesting for this kind of player, but he's always been a really good passer, too, and that's something that I think is very underrated with him is his ability to make decisions. It's not just this guy is a pull-up god essentially this year. It's like if you run him off the line, he can make a read. He can make a very good read uh, very quickly. And I think that gives him avenues to be valuable because he's never been a good finisher. He, he basically has to draw fouls. He, he's not very good two-point finishing, even though he had a, a crazy finish over Mo Wagner last night. It was, it was Mo Wagner, of course, but it was like a left scoop um, and one that was awesome. But I think that is something that's a little bit underrated is the fact that he can not only shoot, but he can really pass the ball. That just gives him avenues to have offensive value that exceed your just general pull-up guys who can't read the floor. So, yeah, uh, I think that I want to be careful here. I think he is like 100% an NBA player, 100% like a really valuable, at the very least, high, high, high end backup guard with some potential to be a lower end starter. Having said that, I think that some of this is a hot shooting 25 games. Uh, Right now, there are 23 players who have taken at least 100 shots off the dribble this season. Devontae Graham is second in terms of efficiency there at 58.3 effective field goal percentage. I am skeptical that he is a Trey Young, Damian Lillard, Luka Doncic, like level shooter off the dribble. Just kind of am, to be honest. Uh, If you told me he was like a 50% effective field goal percentage guy off the dribble, which, by the way, would still be like in the top half of this sample, I would buy that. I want to see where the shooting settles in a little bit more before diving full on into the deep end of Devontae Graham is like a for sure NBA starter. I think it's fair to have some skepticism. I'm a little bit more optimistic, but I, I do want to see it play out over a larger sample. Like, do I think he's necessarily a 42% three-point shooter on historically great volume for a guard? I'm not sure if I'm there yet. I want to see it over a greater sample, but I am kind of buying what I've seen so far. It's not just the stats. It's, like, visually how many different ways he can get to, like, step backs, like, sidesteps. He can shoot very quickly. He's got a versatile yep. shot. So I am buying the, what he has shown on the floor. I, I just don't know about the degree of the shooting success. And with that, with him, it's very integral about the degree. So wherever that settles, it's going to be really fascinating to know. I just, again, think that the, his passing is very, very underrated. I will say that again. It's just like that, those two things really make Devontae Graham, Devontae Graham, as well as not being a total disaster on defense. Like he was even making some really nice rotations against Washington last night that I was really impressed with from the weak side tagging. He kind of uses what athleticism he has to like break up, you know, lobs, deflections and stuff like that. He's a very good player and he was a very good college player too. And I think the jump between last year and this year, honestly, has just been really, really impressive. Right. And, 
again, like I want to be careful because I do think that like he would be the prototypical starting point guard for like the Lakers, in my opinion, like super high end decision maker, very good shooter. I don't know if he's an elite shooter, but very good shooter who can knock down shots off the dribble can defend is smart in rotation has always been like a pretty good defender, even going back to Kansas. So when I say like, I'm not sure he's a starting point guard. Like there are situations where I think he can be like a very good starting, like a great fit as a starting point guard is maybe the way to put it. But the thing that worries me is that he is going to be extremely reliant on being a legitimate 40% three point shooter, basically on like pull up threes. And the reason that that is, is that he's still this year shooting sub 40% from two point range. Uh, this is a guy that is not going to be able to get easy buckets going toward the hoop. Um, that's an integral part of being one of the, let's say, top half starting point guards in the NBA. It's, for instance, right now, like I just wrote about Denver, um, it's what holds back Jamal Murray from being an elite level point guard, and it's what holds back Monte Morris from being a starting level point guard. And the difference between Devontae and Monte Morris, I think, is that Devontae has a bit more of a functional handle, I think, um, and has a bit more of a functional pull-up game, too. Like, Devontae is better yep. than Monte Morris, who I think is, Monte yes. is probably one of the five best backup point guards in the NBA. But I'm just saying that I am slightly skeptical right now just based off of the shooting start and I want to see where the shooting settles in before making grand pronouncements about where Devontae's career is going. Right. When you have very shot-dependent players, which Devontae is, it's fair to be skeptical because you have to maintain a certain threshold. But it does happen, like, with these guards. Like, you do have yeah. – you do find these guys who are just great shooters. Like, Van Fleet, for example, you know, he's better on defense than Graham is. He's stronger. He can switch more. But he also isn't really, like, a dynamic finisher. He doesn't have that kind of lift around the basket. And he, he makes a lot of his money as an off-ball player, as, like, a catch-and-shoot guy and just being a super reliable decision-maker and really high-level shooter. Like, I, I don't think that Graham's going to get there on defense to that level. But I do think that that's kind of, like, the model for him is to be an awesome passer decision maker and just be able to shoot the hell out of it and again that's why it, it's hard to project certain guys because it's so much about degree of shooting like we're probably going to run into this conversation maybe about Nico Manning in the future as far as applying somewhat to him and we'll, we'll, we'll just see how, how the greater shooting sample plays out yeah and uh with PJ Washington too like PJ is a guy that I had at 20th or so on my big board if I remember correctly you had him at like 11 or 12 on yours right I had him 10 yeah 10 so PJ the reason I was lower on him is I actually thought he would come in pretty quickly and make an impact uh just as like a bench rotation power forward but I just wasn't sure what the upside was lo and behold he is a much better shooter even than what he was in college like it's just he is functionally capable of getting off shots from more angles than what I thought he would be especially early in his career yeah I don't know if a lot of people expected him to be almost a 42 percent three-point shooter thus far I mean he right. it looks very convincing too when he shoots and he's not someone who's ever been like a dynamic foul shooter either but his stroke very repeatable he's very confident in it now pick, pick and pick and pop you know space from the corners with relative ease I'm, I'm high on that I, I think I don't know if he's a 42 percent three-point shooter off the catch but he's gonna be a plus shooter I, I think we can say that at this juncture based on his touch level is also very very high level you see that mostly manifest on jump hooks and we knew he could pass he can like short roll and I love how Charlotte's used him as kind of a four or five hybrid like they are there are some lineups where he plays the five and they, they use him as the role man he's good at posting up mismatches they go to that a lot down the stretch and he can make legitimate decisions out of that so a lot of his game that that stuff was there I think all of us saw that I, I do echo your sentiment about the upside he's going to get better he's going to get better in rotations he's going to make better decisions even though he's already making pretty damn good ones in my opinion I don't know if he has the face-up game as far as slashing to the rim He's kind of underwhelmed me there as far as his handle and ability to, like, extend around the basket. Not the most, like, fluid, flexible athlete in that yeah. respect. That, that's how I think he's going to tap into that upside, though. If he can prove me wrong there, I think his upside vaults. But I do think he's always been – I viewed him as he's going to be a very quality starter, potentially. And that's still kind of how I feel about him. And in this class, that's, of course, a very good pick. Yeah, and I will say, like, over the course of his last, like, 15 games, like, he's slowed down 
quite a bit. Like his first, what was it, like ten games? He really came out like gangbusters. Like he was a monster. It, like especially opening night, like he goes out and drops what, like twenty five or something, and makes six or seven threes. Um, over his last fifteen games, he is at eleven points, four rebounds, two assists, only one turnover, but is shooting a more reasonable thirty seven percent from three. Um, I think that that's more what his game is. And to be honest, like I think based off of what I've seen, he's probably a sixth man. Um, but maybe he keeps getting better. Like he is only twenty one years old. Uh, he is legitimately really, really good at making decisions offensively. Defensively, I do think he is playing a role in the fact that Charlotte is one of the worst defensive teams in the NBA. Just straight up, they're terrible on defense. Um, And part of that is, and part of it is like, look, you're playing Miles Bridges, Terry Rozier, uh, Devontae Graham, Malik Monk. Like, you're playing a lot of young guys. And Terry, you know, even though he's played five years now, is still fairly young, right? You're playing a lot of young guys without a ton of veteran backstops, a ton of minutes. So you would not expect their defense to be great. Having said that, I worry about their defense. Even though PJ is in the right spot pretty consistently in help, I don't know that I would call him uh, a particularly great defender because, as you mentioned, the inflexibility uh, as an offensive driver. I will also note the inflexibility uh, throughout his game. He plays kind of stiff on defense, too. Yeah, I've never really trusted him on an island in switch settings. Like, I'm not saying he's like this dynamic defender. If I thought that, I would have had him a little bit higher on my board pretty clearly. I think he's solid. And for a rookie, I think he's definitely been solid for a rookie big man defender as far as intellect. Like, he's been a pretty good team defender. Switch, he's been decent at. I I think in the games I've watched, he hasn't held up great there, but he does provide resistance in the post. I think he has has the physical tools, I think, to be a long-term starter there with that strength level at 6'7", with the 7'3", wingspan, and the intelligence. And I I do think he he fits a very easy role in offense if he can space the floor like this, and you can get versatile with his game as far as playing in between the 4 and the 5 in some lineups. So, I'm probably a little higher on his starting upside. I I do think he's going to be a quality starter in the league, and I think it was a great pick where where they got him in in this class. Um, at the time, he was kind of branded a little bit as like anti-modern game. I do think he embodies a lot more modern game principles than he gets credit for. Yeah, it's not that I ever thought he was like anti-modern game at all. I just wasn't sure that he could consistently defend the four. Uh, I actually thought that like he would be able to shoot a little bit. Now, did I think he would be as good of a shooter as he is now? No, I did not. And again, uh, so much of projecting NBA draft picks now is projecting the degree to which the shooting is going to translate. Uh, yep. He was like a good shooter at Kentucky, and I actually bought into the mechanics, but I didn't think that he'd be able to shoot on the move in some like off-ball screening actions or in some like pick-and-pop, like rolling and replacing around catching, firing quickly kind of settings, you know? Yeah, no, that's fair. And I think his confidence has been there. Like, he's very confident with his shot in the games I've seen. That's also very big for rookies is just having that consistent confidence. And that's something that he's had. And he even had that at times at Kentucky, even though you're not going to be as confident playing for Cal in those situations because you're not going to get enough opportunity. But, again, I don't want to take anything away from P.J. because I think he's been really solid. I really like P.J. But, again, I think that – like Charlotte and, and Borrego have really utilized him well, and I think a lot of rookies can't point to that. And I think that's True. that is boosting Washington some, but he's also boosting himself by having these, you know, somewhat versatile skills. Yeah, and you know, it sounds like we have been very negative, or maybe me, not you, um, have been very negative on Devonte and PJ. And I really don't mean to do that. Like Devonte is averaging 19 points and eight assists a game right now. Devonte Graham has been awesome this year. He has been. So much more than what I think anyone would have expected from him, Uh, even just based off of draft position, let alone uh, an actual scouting report based off of last season. So even me, like I was fairly in on Devontae Graham, like being an NBA player coming into this year. He has far exceeded that expectation. He is genuinely a really, really good player. I am going to be interested to see where it all settles, though, I think is my point. 
Definitely. I think if I'm going to be negative on anybody on Charlotte, it's probably going to be Miles and just that off-ball D contained to plague him. His advanced numbers, like, he's the worst player in RPM, and I don't know if that means really anything, but you see him struggle on the floor, like, how often he lapses there. Considering expectations, I think he'd be the guy that I point to and say, I expected him to take a a bigger leap, and I expected that in Summer League this past summer as well, and we just haven't seen it yet. So hopefully the light turns on for him at some point, because I think Charlotte overall, they have some really interesting pieces. They don't have any difference makers, in my opinion. They need to get the primary infrastructure in place, but if they do that, let's say they get you know, whoever you like best in this upcoming draft, they get a high-profile guy, and then maybe they add one guy in 2021 in a much better top-heavy class. Uh, I think that then they really have something, because they have some of the ancillary pieces that you can find on winning teams. Yeah, and here's the thing, too. They have a lot of these guys signed for a few years now as well. So, like, yeah. Devontae Graham is signed through next season at $1.6 million. They have Miles Bridges is signed through 21-22, his last year making $5.4 million. P.J. Washington, 22-23, last year making $5.8 million. Like, they are going to be able to make some real moves in the summer of 2021, by the way. Like, this is not even going to be that far away. Next summer, I would advise them to play it very soft pedally. Uh, because they can actually get out to some cap space next summer, I would please, please <laughs> do not fuck this up, would be my uh, advice, because I think that there is a world where they can actually do some real damage in 2020, 2021. Uh, being bad this year, getting a high draft pick, like you said, being bad next year, getting a high draft pick, and then utilizing the guys that they already have, like you mentioned, that are on good deals and seem like they're going to be, at the very least, very good role players. And P.J. Washington, even though you're a little bit disappointed, Miles, like you would agree with me that he is, at the very least, a rotation wing, right? Yes, he's a rotation wing. Uh, and Devontae, who, like I just said, like I think can be a very good secondary, I don't even know that secondary is the right word, but like can be a good decision maker next to a star that can knock down threes, make ridiculous decisions, and be like, I don't even know, like, I kind of envision him, this is not the way that he plays, but, like, there are, like, some aspects of, like, Rajon Rondo now that he's not, like, the hyper-athlete that he used to be, like, that can shoot. Yeah, that's really interesting as far as a parallel. I, I think Devontae, this is the most extreme case likely, but if they get Cade in 21, like, Devontae would be great next to Cade. As yeah. far as a guy who yeah, can yeah, play yeah. around a ball handler like that. So it's going to take that kind of difference maker to really move the needle for Charlotte. But I think they do need to be patient with their young guys, like you said, and not just go all in on free agency and, and make bad signings because they are watchable. Like, I do enjoy watching the Hornets whenever I watch them, and that counts for something. It's not like they're on a miserable team, again, like the Knicks, for example, where you, you, they're not they're horrible and they're also very bad to watch. Like, Borrego's good. I I like some of their infrastructure there. So just stay the course here. Yeah, no, totally agree. Uh, Let's move on. Let's talk about uh, another surprise here. Another thing that I wanted to bring up is just Duncan Robinson. Uh, We talked about Davis Bertans earlier in this podcast. Duncan Robinson is probably not having as good of a three-point shooting season as Davis, but he is Damn close. He has been unbelievably on fire to start the season, and this comes after he shot 47% from three in the G League last year. Yeah, I mean, some of the threes he hit last night, we both watched the Hawks game, and he was, like, flying off screens. Like, they can utilize him off dribble handoffs, and he has, like, positional size. So that's kind of what you look for when you look for those kind of qualities. When you're looking for a movement shooter who's diverse but also a high-level shooter, you want that positional size from him, and he brings that. And that's what gives Miami such diversity in their lineups because you have Hero who can do a little bit of that stuff. Like, none can come off a dribble handoff as well. Like, they're a really, really fun team, and I think that Robinson really, has I, I didn't expect him to be like he should be in the three-point contest like straight yeah. up like he's that level of shooter who do we think right now are the five best shooters in the NBA I was like trying to figure this out last night because I said like good god I think that Duncan Robinson is like one of the five best shooters in the world and again this comes from him shooting 47 percent from three in the G League last year and being like an elite level shooter at Michigan for many many years now and you can say the same with Bertons right like Bertons has been an unbelievable shooter for many years now if you had to pick out the five best shooters in the world, who do you think they would be? Oh, man, that's such a tough question because I'm going to miss somebody not prepping for the question. Does anybody stand out to you just as far as guys who have to be there? So we're going to get rid of Steph and Clay from this conversation right now just because they're hurt. Sure. 
they both would absolutely be in the top five. Um, I kind of think Carl Towns has to be in this. I will say that. Uh, Carl Towns right now is shooting 42% on 8.4 three-point attempts per game and has now consistently been an outrageous three-point shooter throughout the course of his career. Uh, 40% last season on 4.6, 42% the season before that on 3.5 attempts per game. Uh, I am pretty sure Carl Towns is one of the five best shooters in the world. Yeah, this is like an expansive list. Like You could say Joe Harris. I think he's... Like belongs in that conversation. JJ Redick yep. still like Buddy Heald too. He's not shooting as well this year, thirty-seven percent. But if I were to pick one of the five best shooters in the league, he would probably be on that list. Like straight up, there's a lot of good shooters right now. Just looking down this list, I mean Bogdanovich is shooting really well, of course. But yeah, I, I would not fault you. Of course, Stephen Clay, I would easily have in the top five if they were healthy and if we're considering the entire player pool. But I, I get your point here. Yeah, so I think I would have Joe Harris in there. I agree with you. Would you have – you would not have Harden and Lillard in there, correct? See, there's such a – that's a difference in how you evaluate shooting because there's right. so many layers to it. Like shot makers or like off-ball kind of diverse shooters, it's very different as far as shot quality. Like if you're getting a lot of catch and shoots, this is something like I think Luca and Trey are both much better shooters than their numbers. I mean, yeah, maybe I not Trey's not better than 30%, but they take so many hard shots. Right, yeah. and some of these movement shooters do as well. But when you get more catch and shoots, I, I just think that's a different style of shot. Well, let's say who do you think are the five best catch and shoot players in the NBA? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I, I I would go Joe Harris there. I would go yep. you know Stephen Clay when they're healthy. I would still go Buddy Heald like when he has an open catch and shoot. If you put Towns on that list, I wouldn't hate it, frankly, <laughs> which is nuts. Um, but he also even belongs somewhat recognition wise on the shot maker list as well. If you're going to make yeah. a separate list. Those guys stand up the most. I would still go Redick. I, I still think he's an awesome catch-and-shoot guy. Yeah, those four stand out a little bit above the rest. What about you? I think I would have Bertons and Robinson yeah, Bertons. at the bottom. And then I think I would have J.J. Redick, Joe Harris, and uh, probably Carl Towns. I think those are the five. And then I'd have like Buddy Heald just right outside. Um, trying to think of who else. Who else has just been like flat-out ridiculous as a shooter this year. Um I think those are the guys, right? Like, those are probably the guys. Yvonne Fournier is having a really good shooting year as well. Yeah. I don't consider him on that same level, though, as far as the entire body of work, but he is having a very good shooting year. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think who else. Like, Devontae Graham, obviously, is having a great shooting year. I don't know that I consider him on this list. Like, again, he's more of a pull-up guy versus a catch-and-shoot guy. Uh, same with, you know, like I said, Lillard, Trey Young. These guys are more pull-up guys. Uh, Zach Levine is shooting 40% from three this year. He's more of a pull-up guy. Honestly, like Marcus Morris is shooting 48% from three, and I think he is a really good shooter. Uh, Not on this list for me, but a really good shooter worth mentioning that's having a great year nonetheless. I think that those are my five with Buddy just on the outside at six. That's definitely fair, and I would say Bogdanovich on Utah. I mean, he has been awesome shooting the ball this year. Like, seven attempts, 45%. Like, he's, I think he's got to be one of the best catch-and-shoot guys, purely this season. I don't know if yeah. you want to extrapolate that moving towards the pass. It's tough marrying, like, just the sample size this season with, like, pass shooters. I, I would also factor in somewhat gravity, too, and overall body of work, but there are some really fucking good shooters in the league right now, just looking at this list. Yeah, like... Doug McDermott is shooting 47% from three. He doesn't get a ton of attempts just because, like, he only plays 20 minutes a night. But, like, Doug McDermott is one of the best shooters in the league. Uh, I'm trying to think, like, who else is shooting great on, like, lower attempts. Um, I think Kelly Olenek is a great shooter. Uh, George Hill is shooting 51% from three on three attempts a game. Good God. Like, George Hill, really good shooter. I don't think he's quite in the class of these guys, though. I think my five would be Bertons, Carl Towns. Duncan Robinson, J.J. Redick, Joe Harris. Yeah, that's definitely fair. Um, let's move on. You wanted to talk about uh, one of those guys that I just mentioned. Uh, you wanted to talk about – wait, did you just mention? No. You, you, I, I did not bring up OG Ananobi, but you wanted to talk about Ananobi, and I wanted to talk about Fred Van Vliet. And in the context of surprises this season, I think <laughs> the Raptors are slightly surprising people just insofar as how good they are uh, – but also the fact that Van Vliet and OG Ananobi, I don't know that Ananobi is a surprise necessarily because I think we've been waiting for this for a while, but like he has been really, really good this year. And Fred Van Vliet is a surprise. Like nobody expected 18 points a game and seven assists a night from Van Vliet at any point in his NBA career. Yeah, it's all based on what the point 
of relativeness yeah. is, like what, what your expectations were. I think OG just deserves more so just credit for making a mini leap that he doesn't get for talked sure. about a ton in mainstream, like shooting 42% from three. Who knows if that's sustainable? Probably not, clearly. But I, I think that he's added to his game, like attacking closeouts. He's flash passing throughout his career that I think that's been the most underrated trait of his, his ability to make some drop-off passes. He has some underrated feel there. We know about the defense as far as versatility and how strong he is. It's just incredible. Like he, He's one of the most versatile defenders in the league, in my opinion, on the wing, just with his strength level and, and his tools overall. But I, I think the offense and just making a mini leap that Toronto really needed. You know, They lost Kawhi. They lost Danny Green. They, they, a lot of people were somewhat skeptical, even though I, I was always really high on Toronto. I thought they were like they were definitely going to yeah. make the playoffs. They were a top. They were like at least a tier two team, which I think that's what they are. Um, but OG just deserves some credit, I think, for being a part of that. Should we talk about the Knicks being a bad surprise? <laughs> the the piece of shit that you get in your Christmas gift box. Oh God! I mean, what a disaster! Are we even? Are we surprised? Are you surprised by anything on the Knicks? As far as maybe the degree of badness, I'm not even surprised by that though. This roster, really, we've talked about that in the last podcast in depth. But man, like it, it's just it's a brutal watch to watch them, and I, I feel bad for guys like RJ. You know, Knox, Spencer Perlman tweeted this out earlier. Twenty five percent finishing in the half court. Just everything has gone wrong for them. I am surprised that they are as bad as they are because I am surprised that any team in the NBA can have a 101.3 offensive rating. Yeah, it's really brutal, man. Like, it's hard to score about a point of possession in the NBA now. Um, and, like, we we thought that they would be bad defensively, but, like, I figured that they would figure some stuff out offensively. Like, they have enough shooting. They have enough vets. I didn't think they would be worst team in the NBA offensively. And the last thing that you brought up is a guy that I really wanted to talk about too is Rashawn Holmes. So I've been kind of discussing as watching Obi Toppin that I see some similarities to like a super size or like super version of Rashawn Holmes is like smaller center with great pick and roll instincts, can put the ball on the floor a little bit, can make some decisions. The thing about Obi is that he can shoot and I think he can attack closeouts in like a different way. But Rashawn Holmes is like kind of helped reshape an entire season in Sacramento that looked like it was off the rails in the first five games. Yeah, that's been the biggest surprise to me is like post losing Bagley, losing Fox, they've been able to tread water and actually win games. And I think he's a huge catalyst behind that. And just the energy that he plays with in the regular season. I do agree that like Toppin, Toppin's more skilled than me. He can do more things like shooting, dribbling, all that stuff. Rashawn just plays his ass off on the floor. And I think that's something... Like, Dwayne Devin doesn't even really play that I've seen anymore. Like, he's out of the rotation. He hasn't shot the ball well. And they've kind of – I think Luke Walton has had to reconstruct how they play, playing slower. But just the the way that Holmes plays and the energy that he gives that team on a nightly basis, and they were dead. Like, if you watch that team, I know you you did in the beginning of the season, it looked like a tomb. And, and like, home games and stuff, like, nobody had any energy. And I, I just think that Holmes' ability to galvanize that – has been really impressive. He's kind of been one of the catalysts in keeping Sacramento afloat. Yeah, I totally agree on that. And yeah, Dwayne Dedman, like, man, it's funny because Dwayne Dedman might be the worst contract signing of the offseason, and Rashawn Holmes, like, might be the best value contract signing of the offseason. And now the Sacramento Kings have, you know, for the next couple of years, they're basically just paying a center $17, $18, 19000000 dollars a year. Yeah, it's, <laughs> they have some interesting choices to make as far as how Bagley fits with these guys and all of that. I mean, they have cooled off a little bit. They, they're 4-6 and six in the last 10, but even like being 10-13 and 13 at this juncture in, in ninth place right now in the West, like would you have ever expected that if they lost both Bagley and, and Fox especially no, no, on this no. team? No, I thought that this season was about to go off the rails. And after six games, I thought it was going to go off the rails, and then De'Aaron Fox got hurt. Uh, after I think it was like nine or ten games, I thought this I thought this was about to be a disaster, and it's not. And I don't even know the like who to give credit to in this one. Like I do think a lot of it is Rashawn Holmes. I think a lot of it is like Harrison Barnes being like really competent and veterany. I think that Buddy Heald, you know, as we talked about earlier, Buddy Heald's been really really good this year. I think um, I'm going to be very interested to see what they do with Bagley. I, if I was the Kings, I don't know why you couldn't play Bagley in a very similar role to how you play Rashawn Holmes because he plays super hard and he's just 
a more athletic, bigger, taller version of Holmes, you would think. Uh, I'll be interested to see if they utilize him like that in the minutes where, because you're definitely going to play Holmes. Like, you absolutely need that energy. I just wonder if they use Bagley yeah. like that now. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting. I'm very curious to see what they look like. Bielitsa deserves yeah. a lot of credit, yes. too. has kind of come back up, shooting almost 43% from three. He's been integral to their floor spacing like he was in the past as far as spacing the floor and, and pick and roll and getting that spread four out there. I, I like what he's done. And, of course, having Bogdan, like he is – so integral to what yep. they do because he's the one ball handler that they have who can really play pick and roll and score. He doesn't just, he doesn't get enough credit. I mean, I think he's probably starting to get enough credit because he's going to get paid a ton in free agency. They tried to lock him up to that veteran extension, which he declined. If, if they don't have him and they don't have anybody who can make plays really on the ball, because that's never really been where you want Buddy Heald. You don't want him as much in pick and roll. You want him more as like an overall floor spacer situationally attacking as a scorer, but not like a pick-and-roll guy. So I, I think that their depth is actually okay. And some of these guys have played, you know, at least fully to their capacity, and you absolutely need that to survive without, you know, arguably your your best player and arguably one of your two best prospects. Yeah, and Marvin's going to be back tonight, it looks like, uh, the Wednesday night game here. Oh, good. Uh, and then I think De'Aaron Fox is like a week or two away from being back, so... I'm going to be real interested to see what this team looks like. I think that they are – I will be interested. I'm not entirely sure what to, what this team looks like. The fact that they've been able to hold steady is an incredible credit to them. Uh, they're going to get some stars back now, and we're going to see – or at least some younger stars that uh, are more talented than a lot of the guys they have. So we'll see how it goes. And the fact that they're ninth and they have gotten absolutely negative contributions from Corey Joseph, Trevor Ariza, and Dwayne Dedman is – an accomplishment, I think. Yeah, I think Joseph's been really, really good on defense in some of the individual matchups, but offensively, yeah. And overall, I don't know about value-wise there. I will, I will say, too, like, give Luke Walton some credit. And I did not expect to say that, uh, you know, five games nope. into the season. But they, they're playing at the slowest pace of the league. He's kind of reconfigured this roster on the fly, and they've won some games doing it. So I, I would say give Luke some credit as well because, I mean, he, he – has again this is a very specific team last year they were get out in the break you know with fox push it down your throat get up and down at a high level and they just don't have that element to their game without fox and to be able to you know reform your team on the fly like that and win some games i, I think is an accomplishment for luke so the pace thing is a positive and a question mark for me because i agree with you that he deserves credit for fixing the issue i also will be very interested to see if they change what's working when they get De'Aaron and Marvin back, because those two guys, they're at their best running. Um, <laughs> I think that they're smart enough to do this. They're smart enough to change what they want to do. We'll see. I'm intrigued. I am very intrigued by this. Yeah, I would be surprised if they kept the current pace with Fox and, and Bagley back. I think it's more about playing and optimizing to your roster and, and trying to, to win games and whatever. Like, at least ideally, that's what it's about, right? And like you said, we'll find out if Luke adjusts now that they have you know, their, their tempo setters more back and, and, and pushing in transition. Yeah, no question. That's about all I got for this episode. Do you want to bring up someone else? I think I'm good overall. I think we covered all the baselines. We had that one podcast where we talked about you know, storylines and whatnot. I think we covered a lot in that. Some of the, like the, the Cavs and the Knicks, for example, we don't need to relitigate any of those points. So I think we got through everything. Yeah, and, you know, I think that everyone right now is starting to talk about trades. Maybe, like, next Monday we'll reconvene and talk about potential trade options here going forward because I believe that that'll be December 15th. Uh, off the top of my head, maybe December 15th is Sunday, so we can actually start seeing some trades happen. Uh, a lot of the league opens up and is then capable of being dealt. So... I'm going to wait until then to do trade options. I just wanted to talk about some really exciting guys because, like, Cole and I said at the start, like, we just really enjoy NBA basketball this season, which is awesome, and I'm pumped to see where it goes from here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the teams, there's basically a watchable team in every time zone. I, I will say... If you haven't watched a lot of the Lakers, I, I, yeah. that's one guy I didn't talk about too much is Caruso and his value, like what he's given their defense as far as team defense. The Lakers are a very, very fun watch this year. LeBron's trying more on defense. He, he's actually been – he's had some games where he's been legitimately impactful. Anthony Davis, of course, is Anthony Davis. Uh, it's, it's, I, I like the Lakers. I had him number two coming into the year in the West. They have been – they have exceeded my expectations thus far. The Lakers are right now – probably the best team in the league. I think that they're a little bit better than Milwaukee right now. I think that's fair. 
frankly, their point. I mean, point differential wise, Milwaukee's incredible, thirteen point three. Lakers are nine nine. But yeah, I I've watched more of the Lakers by far than Milwaukee, just because Milwaukee usually plays when more teams are playing, and I typically watch the Lakers later at night. Um, but yeah, the Lakers have just been so 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 impressive. Dwight Howard, we talked about him on one of the previous podcasts. His defense this year has been a revelation to me, at least his movement and just his energy and how he's playing he's really trying to put team first and that's you know in the past Dwight has is kind of all over the place as far as I mean of course he was an incredible defensive player at his peak but what does he actually want and I think this year this team just seems to be enjoying yeah. themselves like they're, they're fun to watch because they enjoy playing together and that's something that I, I think does matter especially in the regular season during some of the events like a lot of people point to their schedule and like oh they have an easier schedule but the good teams the really good teams beat the teams that they're supposed to and the Lakers have have done that this year. Yeah, and you can say say the same about the Bucks. Like I think the Bucks are 21st in strength of schedule yes. and the Lakers are 22nd. Like look, you can point to strength of schedule and all that stuff as much as you want. Like it is what it is. You got to beat the teams that are in front of you. At some point we're all going to get a chance to even up the schedules at least to an extent, right? Like Boston right now, 17 and 5, and they have the 25th ranked schedule in the NBA so far this season. Like schedule will come back around and We'll see where they stand halfway through the year and kind of go from there. And Cole, tell the people where they can find your work. Right now, I haven't written too much lately, so I would say I'll skip right to continue to listen to this podcast. <laughs> We're very lucky to have Cole on this podcast. So... Uh, <laughs> Let's cut it there. I don't think we're going to talk about movies or anything like that. Until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye. 